0: The title of the message this evening before we come to the Lord's table is simply, What's so good about Good Friday? What's so good about Good Friday? I want to encourage you to keep your Bible open for we'll be looking at several different references this evening, but we want to begin here in John chapter 19, a reference that we read just a moment ago, beginning at verse 17, the Bible says, and he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him one on either side, and Jesus in the center. Now, before we answer the question this evening, what's so good about Good Friday, let's first begin by talking about why it is that Friday is the day we recognize as the day of Jesus' death. I do that because sometimes debate arises around the exact day of Jesus' death in recognition of the fact that the Bible declares he would be in the grave for three days and three nights before his resurrection. For example, Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 12 in verse number 40, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So the question arises around this idea that if Jesus was in the grave for three days and three nights, how then does that fit between Friday and Sunday? I mean, the way that we count our days and nights, Friday night, one, Saturday night, come on class, Two Sunday night, three, which would mean then, if Jesus died on Friday and he spent three days and three nights in the grave, he would have to arise on monday if we if we follow that same pattern, but we know he didn 't arise on Monday. We know the Bible is very, very clear that he rose again from the dead on sunday it 's why we worship on sunday it 's the lord 's day it 's the day that he rose again from the dead. So does that mean then that we ought to be celebrating good Thursday? Thursday being night one, Friday night two, Saturday night three, and he rises again on on Sunday. Why is it we celebrate and recognize Christ's death on Sunday? Friday. I'm going to give you the short answer and then I'm going to try my best to explain it as briefly as I can without us getting bogged down by the question in and of itself. The short answer is that the Jewish method of counting days was not the same as ours. I've been to Israel. Those of you who've been with us on those trips over to Israel would recognize that even yourselves. It's not only a statement that we say that the Jewish way of counting days was different than ours is, is that it is different than ours, even today. For example, in the Old Testament, when, when Esther was making preparations to go into the king on behalf of the Jews, she told Mordecai to persuade the Jews to fast prior to her entrance into the king. Esther chapter 4 and verse 16, they say, Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or Day. But then two verses later in Esther chapter 5 and verse 1, here's what the Bible says. Now it happened on the third day, on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace. Again, if three days and three nights were counted the same way that we count them today, then Esther would not have sought the king until the fourth day. Yet the Bible says she sought him on the third day. On the third day. We see various examples of that throughout the Bible. So when we look at these various passages, as well as a study through history, we can conclude that in scriptures, the third day is equivalent to the phrase, after three days, all right? So when we see the phrase, The third day, it's equivalent to the same phrase used throughout the Bible, and that is after the third day or after three days. Another example. Let's focus back in on the Lord Jesus for a moment. Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, the Bible says, And he began to teach them, his disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after... Three days rise again. Alright, that's Mark chapter 8. But when we go a little bit further into 1 Corinthians chapter 15, here's what the Bible says. 1 Corinthians 15 4 says that Jesus was buried and that he rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. Well, is there a contradiction here in the Bible? Absolutely not. That's why we must do our homework when we study the Bible. We got to look at the context, we've got to look at the history. We got to understand the Bible was not written for American people. It was written for Jewish people. And so we have to understand it on that level. We got to get what the Bible is saying so we can see how it fits our lives. I I want to show you on a chart. I hope that you can see this. If not, I'd be glad to email you a copy of it later. Uh, Looking at this chart, you'll be able to see that the Jewish day was measured from sun. Uh, down to sun down, It's still kept that way today. You'll remember those of you who went to Israel with us that we had to go ahead and uh, uh, get to our places by 6 o'clock on Friday evening because at 6 o'clock Friday evening, Sabbath begins. And so no elevators being used and no microwaves or anything like that. Do what you got to do by 6 o'clock because the Sabbath begins at 6 o'clock on Friday night. And so when we understand sundown to sundown, we'd be able to put this together. For example, you see day one, Friday actually starts at sundown on Thursday night. So there's, there's night one, okay? It ends at sundown on Friday, which is when Saturday, the Sabbath day begins. And so on into Sunday. Sunday actually begins at sundown on Saturday night. That's how the days are counted. So we have night, day, day one, night, day, day two, night, day, day three. So looking at the Jewish calendar, their schedule, how it is that they count days, we see very clearly here that Jesus indeed, according to the Bible, was in the grave according to their system of measuring, three days and three nights. He went in what we would think would be Thursday night, which was actually Friday night because they begin it at sundown, staying over and so on forth until Sunday. Uh, Additionally, both Mark chapter 15 and John chapter 19 indicate that Jesus' death took place the day before Sabbath began. The Sabbath was not practiced by the Jewish people on Sunday. It was practiced on Saturday, again, beginning at sundown on Friday evening and continuing through till sundown on Saturday evening. If you go to Israel on Saturday at 6.01, everything opens back up again, all right? Uh, Sabbath is over. That's the way they measure it. And so the Bible tells us that on the day before Sabbath, which would have fit that Friday period, is when Jesus died. So the religious leaders we were in a hurry, as you read in John chapter 19 and other passages in the New Testament. They were in a hurry to get Jesus off the cross. You remember this? They are in a hurry to get him off the cross. He died around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They had to get him off the cross and his body prepared and in the tomb by Sabbath, by 6 p.m., sundown on Friday, since that is when the new day, the Sabbath day, began. So considering these scriptures along with how the Jewish day was counted, we can see that Jesus died on Friday, day one, stayed buried on Saturday, day two, and rose again on Sunday, day three. I just wanted you to understand that because I oftentimes see through social media and other readings, well, Jesus really died on Wednesday and Jesus really died. Look, we can get in debates all we want to along that. We need to understand that he died, all right? He died. He died in our place. He died for our sins. But when we study the scriptures, this is why we celebrate Good Friday as the day of Christ's death. He died on Friday, the day before Sabbath, spent three days in the tomb, rose again on Sunday. Good Friday. Good Friday. That's what today is. But that Friday 2,000 years ago was a dark day. Both Religious and political communities came together in one joint effort to destroy the man they believed was a threat to their traditions as well as their politics. They falsely arrested him, stripped him naked, mocked him publicly, beat him ruthlessly, and violently, violently crucified him. All of these dark and sorrowful things took place on a day that we now call good. A day that we actually celebrate. And why? What's so good about Good Friday? Well, it's because on Good Friday, Even though religious leaders were conspiring to carry out history's greatest evil, God was working to bring about history's greatest good. Ever since the day... That the first man and woman brought sin into God's perfectly created world. God has been working out all of history to bring to pass a Savior who would put away sin and prepare a perfect and eternal kingdom for all those who would believe on Him. That Savior is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God became man in order that he could redeem sinners like you and I from the curse of sin. Philippians chapter 2 says that Christ Jesus who being in the form of God made himself of no reputation but took upon him the form of a servant and he came to this earth in the likeness of men and being found In the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. It is on that account that God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want you to think about a few things with me this evening. What's so good about Good Friday? Well, I I wrote down here, number one, on the cross, Jesus suffered and died in our place. When we talk about what's so good about Good Friday, well, it was on the cross on Good Friday that Jesus suffered and died in our place. I want us to travel through the scriptures a little bit tonight. Turn over quickly, if you would, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Again, these verses will be on the screen. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. Here's what the Word of God says about Christ's suffering and death in our place. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For He, that is God, God the Father made Him, God the Son, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him sin had brought the sentence of death over our lives but god in his rich mercy and love made a way for us to be saved saved from ourselves god the father as the verse says made god the son sin for us sin for us now why is that significant Because Jesus knew no sin. He was perfect. He was sinless. Yet undeservingly, he willingly took upon himself the punishment that sin deserved. The punishment that we deserved. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22 reminds us that Jesus committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, but he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. We call this imputation. That is, our sin was imputed to Christ on the cross. You see, there's no question that Jesus suffered Physically, the flogging, the crown of thorns, the the ridicule, the nails, the blood, the death, all of it. There, There was physical suffering. But it wasn't just physical suffering, there was spiritual suffering. Our sin was placed upon him. Now, he didn't become a sinner on the cross. Don't misunderstand this. Jesus was perfect all the way through his death, burial, and resurrection. And he remains perfect and sinless to this very day. He didn't become a sinner when our sins were imputed upon him. But he experienced the penalty of sin, and he experienced it in his body. The Bible says that he was even forsaken by God the Father to show us the enormous weight of Christ's sacrifice when he took our sins upon himself. It's why one of the last sayings of Jesus on the cross is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is it that God turned his back on God the Son? God the Father turned his back on God the Son because it was in that moment separation existed between God the Father and God the Son. Because of your sin and because of my sin being put on the body of Jesus Christ, he took it upon himself. It was in that moment on Good Friday as he hung on the tree that the wrath of God was poured out on him as it should have been poured out on us. This is what happened on Good Friday. Christ suffered in great agony as our sin was poured out on his soul our sin was poured out on his soul all of it not just the big sins no every sin even the sin that you and i committed today it was poured out think about the heaviness of christ all the sin of his people being poured out upon him in one bloody transaction imputation Galatians 3.13 tells us that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. This is the gospel, friends. The gospel is this. Look right here. Christ died in my place. That was my penalty. That was my death. That should have been my sacrifice. But Christ willingly and voluntarily did it for us. This is the gospel. This is why Good Friday is good. It is good because Christ died in my place and a great transaction took place. Because my sin was imputed to Christ on the cross, the righteousness of Christ was then imputed to me on account of my faith in Him. I take you back to the verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. It not only says that God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us, but it also says that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Think about this. We who come to Jesus by faith are declared perfectly righteous before God. If this coat represents my sin, it's as if my sin was taken off and thrown upon Jesus. And in this great exchange, as I trust him and believe on him, Christ's code of righteousness is now put on me so that when God sees me, he doesn't see my sin. He doesn't see my separation. No, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is the great transaction, the great exchange. My sin put on the body of Jesus and his perfect righteousness now covering me. It's so important because not one ounce of our righteousness permits a person to be right with God, not one ounce of it, and I'm sure sitting in this room is a room full of good righteous people, I'm sure. Ah, oh, yeah, you may make mistakes or say a few bad words every once in a while or. You say, I'm a pretty good person, and I applaud you for that, but that's no good in the sight of God. In fact, on your best day, on your best day, your goodness and righteousness is repulsive to God. That's what Isaiah teaches us, that our good deeds and our righteousness are like filthy rags to God. So in order to stand guiltless before God, we need not our righteousness. It's never going to make it through the court of heaven. No, what we need is the righteousness of Jesus. We need God to take that which is perfect and impute it to us. And that's what happened on Good Friday. Jesus took our place. He died in our stead. And those who put their faith in that sacrifice will then be given the righteousness of Jesus. I want to ask you a very important question tonight. Have you traded your sin for the righteousness of God? Has there been a moment in your life when you looked to Jesus and said, I cannot save myself, that I am a sinner. And apart from you, God, there is no hope in my life. Friend, that is the call that the cross extends to you on this Good Friday, not for you to come to church in your righteousness. No, it's for you to come in Christ's righteousness. For you to live in Christ's righteousness. Without the righteousness of God, we will never receive forgiveness. We will never experience eternal life in heaven. And that righteousness comes only by faith in Jesus. What's so good about Good Friday? Well, it was on the cross that Jesus suffered and died in our place. We're not just perceiving a God who came to earth and had a bad day. We're perceiving a mission We're watching the history of the world come together in one huge moment, the moment that God took my place. That's what's so good about Good Friday. I wrote down the second thing here. What's so good about Good Friday? Well, secondly, it's through the cross that we can be reconciled to God forever. It's through the cross that we can be reconciled to God forever. I take you to another passage of Scripture. It's in Colossians chapter 1. Again, if you want to flip there in your Bibles, do so. Colossians chapter 1, or you can look at it on the screen here. Colossians 1.19. The Bible says it pleased the Father that in Christ Jesus, in Him, in Christ Jesus, that all the fullness of God should dwell And it is by him, by Jesus, that he will reconcile all things to himself. Whether they be things on earth or things in heaven, how has he done this? He has done this through the peace he makes through the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled? Again, how has he reconciled us to God? He has done this in the body of his flesh through his death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Our sin had separated us from God. And by separated, I don't mean in the same room, but in different corners. I'm talking about pure alienation. We were shut out. We were cut off, completely isolated from God. Yet now, through the death of Jesus Christ, through the blood that he shed for our sins, we who were alienated from God can now be reconciled to God. You know what's glorious about this? Is that God initiated this reconciliation. The Bible says we didn't even know we needed God. That's how depraved we are. That's how sinful we are. We don't even have enough righteousness about us to desire him. So God had to do the whole thing. And I'm thankful he did. He initiated it all. If you look at what it says again there in Colossians 1.19, that it was by him, by Jesus, God initiated this idea of reconciliation. He is reconciling all things to himself. Watch this closely. He is not saying that man is reconciling God to himself. No, but that God is reconciling man to himself. This is God's work. This is something he initiates in our lives. In every reference, in every reference to reconciliation between God and man in the New Testament, it is God who takes the initiative. In every reference. And the point is this. Reconciliation with God is a one-sided process. He does virtually everything. All we have to do is respond to him in faith, and that is the glory of salvation. There is nothing for you to do to earn forgiveness. You could never earn forgiveness. No, God had to initiate that. God had to come to us. God had to become a man. God had to die. God had to rise again. God had to do the whole thing. And what does he want from me, pastor? He just wants you to trust him. Just trust him. That's the problem, isn't it? We... By nature, we, we feel like we have to do something. We have to act upon something. We got to follow this step program. Uh, there's nothing you can do when He has done it all. We'll talk about this more on Sunday. He finished the work, He completed the task. Have to pay your way into heaven. You don't have to be good enough to get to heaven. None of that would ever get you there. All he says is, I want you to trust me. I want you to believe me. I want you to know in your heart that there is nothing that you could ever do. I did it all. Now follow me and you will experience eternal life. Salvation, it's, it's free. It's something God initiated. It's something he completed through the blood of Jesus. Again, that's what Colossians tells us, that it was the blood of Jesus that brings reconciliation between God and man. Peace between God and man. He has made peace through the blood of his cross. All who are reconciled to God this evening are reconciled through the blood of his cross. They're not reconciled on account of good behavior. They're not reconciled on account of religious observances. They're reconciled on account of the blood of Jesus Christ. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He reconciles us through the blood of Jesus. All who are reconciled to God are reconciled through the blood. There is no other means to be saved except through the blood of Jesus Christ. It is why in just a few moments as a church we will drink of the cup that signifies the shedding of Christ's blood, reminding ourselves that we are reconciled to God tonight because of what Christ has done when he shed his blood and washed away mine. And friends, this reconciliation is forever. That's the language of it. He is reconciled in the body of his flesh those who need to be holy and blameless and above reproach. He has reconciled them forever. Through the death of Jesus, we are forever presented holy and blameless in God's sight. That doesn't mean when you start trusting Jesus that things are going to get easier. In fact, things may get a little bit harder. But there is a peace that comes in reconciliation. A peace of knowing that no matter how often I let him down, how often I stumble. And if you're visiting with us tonight and you're trying to figure out this whole gospel and Good Friday thing, let me tell you, you're looking at a room full of people who are all stumbling tonight. We're all struggling. We got problems. We go to counseling. We take medication. We go to confession. I'm just kidding. We don't go to confession, but we do come to church every week saying, Lord, I'm sorry. We're all stumbling through life, but yet we have within us a peace. That we've been reconciled to God, not on my behavior, not on how good I can keep my faith, not on how obedient I am today or tomorrow or the next week. No, I am forever reconciled to God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what's so good about Good Friday. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. I wrote down this one final thing. What's so good about Good Friday? Well, it was on the cross that Jesus suffered and died in my place. It's through the cross that I can be reconciled to God. Finally, it's because of the cross we have power to live with hope and purpose. It's because of the cross that we have power to live with hope and purpose. I take you to one final passage and find it in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Again the scripture's there on the screen. The Bible says for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. The message of Christ's cross, what is the message of his cross? That is his death and his sacrifice and the need for salvation. That message it is foolish to those who do not come to God. Faith. It's crazy. It's ridiculous. Perhaps that's what you're thinking even this evening. That old death and blood and substitution and imputation, that exchange stuff. That's that's silly. That's that's ridiculous. You know what? That's exactly how the Bible says some people are going to think about it. That message, that message of the cross, death. Blood, sacrifice, substitution, it is foolish to those who do not come to his word by faith, but to those who have believed and are saved. We understand that this message of the cross, his death, his resurrection, his sacrifice, it is the power we need to live with hope and purpose in this life. We're nothing without the cross. You can consider that phrase for just a moment in verse 18, those who are being saved. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are presently perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's a very important phrase because it speaks of the all-encompassing work of salvation that God is doing in us. The work of salvation that God has done in our past, in our present, and in our future. Think about it like this We have been saved from the penalty of sin. The day you placed your faith in Christ is the day that God saved you from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. That is, the Christian life is a journey. And that even though sin cannot take me out of the arms of God, there's still a struggle there. I still struggle with temptations. I still struggle giving up those things that Jonathan loves that comes between me and my relationship with God. But God is doing a work in my life. He is sanctifying me. He is saving me. And then we understand that the Bible teaches us that we will be saved. We will be saved ultimately from the presence of sin. What a glorious morning that will be when we wake up with no fear of temptation. So salvation, this is, this is the whole work of salvation. It's not just a work for our past. It's not just a work in our present. It's also a work for our future. We have been saved. We are being saved. And we will be saved. So, so the language that Paul is using in 1 Corinthians 18 is the language of sanctification god is helping me to become who he has already declared me to be and that is holy and righteous and above reproach you see every believer in this room is presently justified and declared righteous before god But now God is sanctifying us. He is saving us. He's cleaning us up. He's making us holy and blameless. Something that only happens through the power of the cross. Something that only happens as we fix our eyes and heart on the message of the gospel. So believer, be encouraged tonight. The cross gives us more than a legal declaration. It gives us a new way of living a life of hope, a life of purpose that comes by the power of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. What's so good about Good Friday? Substitution, imputation, justification, reconciliation, and even sanctification. That every believer in this room has had a moment in their lives where they looked at the cross and trusted Christ But every believer in this room is looking at the cross every day of our lives. (laughs) Because it is only by way of the cross. It is only by the message and power of the cross that we live to see another day. Let me close it with a passage of Scripture in Romans 5. Again, I'm asking the question... What's so good about Good Friday? Let me tell you what's so good about Good Friday. When we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The salvation that God has promised those who would believe on Him. John 3.16 For God so loved you that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever, even you, believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life life. That is what's so good about Good Friday. Have you trusted him? Have you believed on him? What's my prayer even right here where you sit this evening? That there, there is one doubt in your mind that you would simply call unto Jesus believing the promise of His Word that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I recognize that my sin has separated me from You. But because of what You did on Good Friday, I come to You in faith, believing that You took my place. I am trusting you and you alone. I pray that even now in the quietness of this hour or in a few moments when we dismiss that you will do whatever you must to have that peace of knowing I am right with God. Let's bow our heads for a moment of silent prayer. together.